Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm doing okay. Alright. How about you, Sarah? It's been a bit of a busy day for me. Um, I was actually recording a discussion on the horror movie Hereditary yeah. with my friend Georgia on the show Yeah What She Said, which airs on CJSW. Yeah, you went to see that film last night, mm-hmm. and quite enjoyed it, from what I understand. Yeah, it's really, really good. I I don't know where I would rank it, though. I don't know if it's fair to rank no, a 2018 no. movie. That's not the premise of the show. I know, <laughs> I'm just saying. If people want to hear your interview, where can they find it? Well, it'll be up on Yeah What She Said near the end of June. You can search Yeah What She Said CJSW on iTunes, or you can check them out on Twitter as well, or Facebook, at Yeah What She Said. Cool. <laughs> cool. And are they still up on SoundCloud, those, as well? Yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. So what are we watching this week, Ben? The Man Who Changed His Mind. So is is it that I'm looking at you and you changed your mind? Are you the man? Am I the mind? I don't know, Sarah. (laughs) I'm so confused. (laughs) Let's get you a new mind. Oh, no. Yeah, so it's a a pretty clever title, I think. I enjoy it. It's a British film from 1936. The last British film we saw, I think, was Sweeney Todd. Yeah, we're in the age of the quota-quickie. Exactly. However, this film has much more in common with the Ghoul mm. from 1933. The same studio making it, a lot of the same people. Yeah, The Ghoul was old dark house crossed with the mummy. Yes. So as the 1930s progressed, the British Board of Film Censors had become increasingly hostile to the horror genre. Uh, we've talked a lot about even though these horror movies were financially successful in Britain, the censors, you know, cutting a lot out or banning some films outright. We've also talked about the introduction of a whole new rating in the rating system they had at the time just Mm -hmm. for these horror movies. Mm -hmm. While the introduction of the H rating in 1933 had cut into the genre's profitability, the rise of the British quota quickies had seen the genre continue regardless. Yeah, horror movies can be real cheap to make. Exactly. In 1935, Edward Short, the president of the BBFC, made a statement discouraging the production of further horror films. And in 1936, a ban was placed on the import of horror films from foreign markets. Wouldn't that just encourage people to make them because now you don't have as much to to compete with? Well, that's interesting that you would say that. I sort of thought that way too, but instead, um, while there was never a ban placed on locally produced horror films, the British film companies got sort of the message from the censorship board that this was not a desired genre to make, and they just stopped making it. Mm. 
So with the lucrative UK market closed to them, uh, not to mention the European nations that were under fascist influence and thus also not fans of horror, uh, Hollywood no longer saw the profit in the horror genre either and also dropped it. So, The Man Who Changed His Mind would be the final horror movie produced in Britain, indeed anywhere in the world, for the next three years. So it's more like the industry that changed its mind. Yeah, for sure. I think that's <laughs> a good way to put it. The movie's produced by Gainsborough Pictures and distributed by Gamont British, uh, the same studio that had produced The Ghoul, uh, which was also a starring vehicle for Boris Karloff, who stars in this film. He had returned to Britain following the production of The Walking Dead. The first film Karloff made in this British period was a mystery movie called Juggernaut, <laughs> uh, and then that was followed by The Man Who Changed His Mind. The director of this movie is English-born filmmaker Robert Stevenson. Born in 1905, he attended Cambridge and studied engineering. Wait a minute, isn't... No, wait... No relation to Robert Louis Stevenson, okay. writer of Jekyll and Hyde. Well, that, yeah, I got confused. I was like, why is that name familiar? But the timelines didn't line up. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's, that's totally reasonable. So after he graduated from Cambridge, Stevenson's parents gave him six weeks to get a job. So he went to work as an assistant to Michael Balkin, the founder of Gainsborough Pictures, who you can learn a lot more about in our episode on The Ghoul. Balkin was a major British film producer, founded his own production company, Gainsborough, which was then bought by Gamont British, the British division of <laughs> Gamont Film Company, which was a French film company. Yeah. Uh, and when that happened, Balkin continued to work for Gamont British as one of their top production executives, with Gainsborough sort of operating as a like an imprint label. I guess you could say, within Gamont for their B pictures. As Balkan's assistant, Stevenson began writing movie scripts, working his way up from screenwriter to his first feature film directing job in 1932 with the musical Happily Ever After. <laughs> he married actress Anna Lee, star of the 1934 comedy The Camels Are Coming, and... <laughs> the Camels Are Coming! Yes! And The Man Who Changed His Mind would be Stevenson's fifth motion picture. It also stars his wife, Anna Lee. You know, makes sense. After this movie, uh, in 1937, Stevenson would direct the action-adventure film King Solomon's Mines, which won him the attention of Hollywood. And by 1940, he would be working in the United States, first under David O. Selznick, and then later under Howard Hughes, Directing such films as the 1943 version of Jane Eyre, starring Orson Welles and Joan Fontaine. Nice. In the early 50s, he began directing television, including episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Gunsmoke, and Zorro. This last job brought Stevenson to the attention of Walt Disney, for whom he worked for the rest of his career, directing Disney's live-action films, including Old Yeller, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, the Absent-Minded Professor, That Darn Cat, and Mary Poppins, among uh, others. Like, cool Mary Poppins, but oh my god, That Darn Cat. I no, like that that's so the one good. you're fucking excited about. <laughs> Mary Poppins, which is like, held up as one of like the best, you know, live-action kids movies of all time, and you're over here with That Darn Cat, of course. Of course I am. 
So we're kind of seeing him like way before he becomes Robert Stevenson. Yeah. Uh, the, the Disney director, at least in live action. In 1977, Variety estimated that his work for Disney made him the most commercially successful director of all time with a career box office gross of over $750 million, which would be th- over $3 billion in today's money. Dang. He passed away in 1986. As I mentioned earlier, The Man Who Changed His Mind was produced by Gainsborough founder and Gamont British production executive Michael Balkin. Sensing that hard times were ahead for the British film industry, Balkin took a trip to the United States in 1936 to try and forge partnerships between Gamont and the American studios. When he returned to Britain, he discovered that mounting debt had caused Gamont to declare bankruptcy, and in order to remain solvent, they had chosen to cease film production and operate only as a distributor and exhibitor. Selling... Gainsborough to the Rank Organization. So now Balkan was sort of a man without a studio, because it had been sold out from under him while he'd been out of the country. Yeah. With nowhere else to go, Balkan found himself running MGM's British offices, uh, often clashing with MGM head Louis B. Mayer. Eventually, Balkan would come to head Ealing Studios, the most famous and successful British movie studio from 1938 to 1956. He was knighted in 1948 for his work in the British film industry, uh, and his daughter was actress Jill Balkin, who married poet Cecil Day-Lewis, and their son is actor Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, cool. This movie script is written by notable British screenwriter Sidney Gilliatt, who is most famous for later works after this, such as The Lady Vanishes and the St. Trinian's series. Uh, alongside British writer Lawrence Degard Peach and American horror veteran John Balderston. Dude gets around. Yeah. He's like started in a newspaper office. Yeah. And now he's like a bigwig in he's, like the movies. He's the American horror writer for these movies, right? Yeah, yeah. This is likely going to be the last time we see a work by Balderston. Though he would go on to continue to be a major Hollywood screenwriter, this is basically his last horror flick. Um, He would contribute to the scripts for films such as 1936's The Last of the Mohicans and the 1944 American version of Gaslight. In 1953, Balderston and the heirs of Peggy Webling were awarded a settlement on a lawsuit over grosses from Universal's numerous sequels to Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Their original contract with Universal had said that they were to be paid something like $200,000 plus 1% of the profits from any sequels, and they hadn't seen that 1%. Uh, so they sued, and in 1953, they were awarded that money. However, Balderston would pass away the very next year, in 1954. Uh, the cast of this film is packed with British actors like Anna Lee, John Loder, Frank Sillier, Cecil Parker and Lynn Harding, all of whom would go on to have long, distinguished careers in British stage and screen. You know, it's that British actor thing where, like, all of them have been in a million things. Mm-hmm. Anna Lee, in particular, appeared in multiple classic films during the golden age of cinema, but might be best known today for her role as Leela Quartermain on General Hospital from 1979 to 2003. 
The Man Who Changed His Mind was released on September 11th, 1936 in the UK, and on November 1st, under the title The Man Who Lived Again in the United States. The original negative of the film was actually thought lost for years, with only a badly damaged 16mm print of the American version available, until quite recently, when in 2004 the British negative was rediscovered and restored to be released on DVD. Uh, sort of similar to what happened with The Ghoul, if you remember. Mm-hmm. In North America, this film is in the public domain, so we've got it up on our YouTube playlist. But which version is that? The British version. Okay. Yeah, the restored version. So it seems like the people involved in this movie all go on to be like really big deals mm-hmm. in various aspects. This is just kind of like either early in their careers or near the tail end of some people's. Mm-hmm. What do you think this movie's going to be? <laughs> I don't really know. I'm I'm certainly interested in seeing it, especially because it's coming at such a weird place in the genre's evolution where everyone's trying to drop this genre like a hot potato, you know, as quick as they can. Mm-hmm. I expect what we're going to see is like a very competently made, well-produced, like professional-looking movie that isn't very good. That's my prediction, <laughs> but I don't know. I've never seen this movie. Yeah. Well, we'll see if you change your mind. After the break, you will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching The Man Who Changed His Mind from 1936. Maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll live again. Okay, see you on the other side, everybody. <laughs> Every town in every part of the world has one street where things out of the ordinary happen. In the town of Mayfield Falls, that street is Darkside Drive. Darkside Drive Drive is a live horror anthology series about the hidden secrets of disturbing characters. After a successful run of two seasons on CJSW Radio in Calgary, Canada, All 18 episodes are now available online at Apple Podcasts or at www.darksidedrive.com. Creators Don Roth and Justin Guild, along with the talented ensemble of the Calgary Radio Playhouse, invite you to explore a new generation of radio drama as you make your way down the terrifying length of Darkside Drive. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Man Who Changed His Mind from 1936. Sarah, what did you think? I think this movie is pretty rad. Yeah, I really liked this. I was pleasantly surprised. I can't believe it's in the public domain. But it's really good. Yeah, for sure. I thought, like, Cracker Jack script. um, (laughs) Wonderful performances. Lovely cinematography. Great direction. Uh, yeah, I would highly recommend this movie. Yeah, it's it's pretty fun. Why don't you tell us a bit about what's in it? So probably one of the main reasons why I like this film is because of Claire. Yeah, for sure. Played by Anne Lee. She is a kick-ass, funky scientist. And Claire Wyatt has decided to leave for a science post with Dr. Lorenz in Genoa. 
Apparently, he's gone too far in science, but she's determined to take this post, despite all of her current co-workers saying, don't do it. Her sweetheart, Dick, is a reporter at his dad's paper, uh, his dad being Lord Hazelwood. Mm-hmm. Lorenz uh, also has a patient in a wheelchair named Clayton, who is uh, the cynical dry comic relief. So because Dick wrote an article about Lorenz as kind of an excuse to be near Claire as she went out of town, Lord Hazelwood has become interested in whatever science Lorenz does, and is interested in bringing this genius of the mind to his institute in London. Lord Hazelwood has no idea what kind of science this is. We, the audience, have seen a little bit of this brain science, um, and it involves switching the thought cortex uh, out of a brain and uh, switching it with someone else's thought cortex. And we see this demonstrated through um, two chimpanzees, one docile, one not, and they switch brains, basically, and the once aggressive one is now uh, chill, and the once docile is now super mad. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the personality, really, more than the he, brain he's, itself. Yeah, it, he, well, he's taking the thoughts out of the physical brain and then switching them. Yeah. It's not like a surgery, it's like a weird science thing. Yeah, weird science thing. Now, because Lord Hazelwood owns all of the newspapers, there's a big media campaign about Lorenz's return to London, which backfires when he gives a lecture about his brain theories. Lord Hazelwood is very embarrassed and decides to throw Lorenz out, but he changes his mind when Lorenz changes his mind (laughs) with Clayton's. Who So Hazelwood adds Clayton promptly dies because of the shock to his heart, um, and so now Clayton is just permanently in Hazelwood. With Hazelwood out of the way, basically, uh, Lorenz continues with his experiments and is determined to use his science to his own ends. Between some comedic elements of seeing Clayton as Hazelwood get used to being Hazelwood... Clazelwood. <laughs> Lorenz decides to make a pass at Claire, uh, who... Obviously says no, no thank you, Boris Karloff. Um, and at that point, she's like, cool, I'll, I'll marry Dick. Now Lorenz won't be able to pursue me. Dick goes to tell his dad, hey, I'm getting married. And, you know, doesn't think anything of it, but notices that his dad has kind of changed personality. And upon telling Claire about this change, Claire's like, what the fuck? And calls Lorenz on the whole thing. Now, by this time in the film... Clayton as Hazelwood. Clazelwood, you said? Clazelwood. Clazelwood has realized, oh god, Hazelwood did not take care of his health, and I'm probably going to die soon, because I'm an old, like, 50-year-old man with a bad heart. Lorenz, I need you to put me in someone else's body. Put me in my son, and I'll leave everything to him. I'll still be soups rich. Everything will be great. And Lorenz goes, no, I'll be dick. So I'll get Claire, and I'll kill you, Clazelwood, so that Dick still inherits everything. So he does that. And also, Dick in Lorenz's body, that loose end will be tied up because he'll be hanged for murder. Yeah, and he succeeds. Because Dick's an idiot. Yeah, Dick's an idiot. 
I was really surprised, but Lorenz succeeds. During a struggle after the whole experiment, Dick as Lorenz falls out the window at the same time as Lorenz as Dick is captured by police. Now, Dick as Lorenz is dying from this fall, but Claire convinces the police and everyone to let her reverse the experiment so Dick can be restored, and Lorenz, after the experiment, is dying from his fall injuries, and he exclaims that, oh, I went too far, the human mind is too special to be tampered with. The end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, this is a really fun movie. One of the reasons why I think it's fun is the movie's really smart about characterization, mm. uh, which is important if you're going to have a movie about... Switching brains. Exactly. Like... You know, so the actors do a lot of work to give their characters little... um, Ticks. Ticks, exactly, little identifiable things so that when they switch bodies, the alternate actor can latch on to something. So Clayton always kind of squints in one eye, and uh, Lorenz kind of walks in a certain way, and, uh, you know, there's there's just all these little things uh, that are really clever. And, And the script overall is really clever about treating the premise... Uh, which is one of the things I really liked about this movie, is that it commits to its own premise mm-hmm. in a way that I found impressive given the time and place that this movie is coming from. Yeah, it doesn't try to half-ass it. It doesn't try to be like, oh, I'm sorry that I'm a horror movie. Yeah, I know this is silly, but just bear with us. Yeah, and I think part of what helps sell it is um, there's a lot of comedy Mm-hmm. in this movie, but there's something about the dry British humor that seems to work with a horror movie in the same way that the physical comedy character comedy, like you're laughing at a particular person because of like, she's screeching all the time or something mm, like sure. that, that you see in some American films. You mean the American way doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah, I think you're right because this movie has a very black sense of humor. There's a lot of fun that comes from Clayton being Hazelwood but not knowing a lot about Hazelwood and so having to kind of like improv his way through social situations while also taking advantage of the fact that like he can walk and he can do all these things he hasn't been able to do in a while and he's the richest man ever and like has all this power um and and I think you're totally right because it's really hard to tonally shift from I don't know someone slipping on a banana peel and like going down a flight of stairs to like (laughs) the sound of a xylophone And then from that to be afraid of vampires. But it's really easy to switch from that kind of black gallows humor to horror and back. So I think Mm -hmm. you're really right on that. You know, even when it's being funny, it takes itself seriously. And I don't mean that to say that the movie is, you know, super serious in tone, because it has that comedy. But it takes its own premise seriously. And it considers all the implications of that premise. And then it has fun with all the various sort of possibilities and variations uh, on the premise. Yeah. And, like, I I said this at the beginning of the synopsis, but, like, Claire really makes this movie for me. It makes it something that feels unique Mm -hmm. in a way that if this premise had been, like, switched where it was a spunky female reporter Mm. rather than Dick the reporter... But it it was really refreshing to see this new take, even as it kind of fell on that same trope of, like, love triangle of, like, older scientists. Yeah, it's still this same love triangle we've been seeing for, like, a bunch of these movies in a row now of the 
old scientist who's out for revenge because he couldn't get the girl. But the thing that makes it different is Claire's the protagonist of this movie, right? Mm -hmm. She's our hero, right? Dick's an idiot. (laughs) Dick doesn't do anything in this story. Dick is the person who actually needs to get saved at the end. And she's the one who goes in and saves him because as a scientist, she knows enough about Lorenz's work to do it. You know, she's the hero of the movie, and she's probably the most, I would say, assertive, intelligent, and independent female character we've seen in a long time. I mean, maybe all the way back to Mystery of the Wax Museum and the lead reporter character in that movie. Yeah, I think so. Um, Yeah, it's really cool to see. I mean, maybe Fairman Maria, but... uh... Right, sure. That's a good point. I, I guess I'd forgotten about that because it's like... I feel like that's kind of an anomaly because it's over in Nazi Germany. Yeah, it, it's just a whole different sphere of influence. Yeah. But yeah, seeing this in a movie from 1936 was really cool. Definitely, Claire's probably the most notable thing about it. And like, the movie knows it. Mm. Like, when it's like the opening scene, they've just finished a surgery, and right. um, we see two like doctors in like the full... like gear so you can't see their face because they have all of those like face masks whatever they go over to the sink they get stuff taken off and so you see like a guy doctor being like so you're taking this assignment and she's like yeah (laughs) yeah and it's it's a reveal when they like take off the face masks and she turns to Cameron she's like totally like for sure because it's this reveal that it's a woman doctor Yeah. yeah I think one of the other reasons why this movie works so well is the cast of the movie does a really great job sort of selling the absurd nature of the story. <laughs> um, to, like, they even say, like, oh, I'll change your mind. Yes. Like, they say that a few times, like, oh, I'm sure she'll change her mind. Sure. Like, <laughs> it's just so great. Well, I mean, the thing about it is, these are all experienced British actors, and I think this is one of the things that I really respect British actors for because they can really bring a kind of professionalism to the table such that even if they might have thought this role was beneath them or the material was beneath them, they still commit to it and sell it. And that goes so far in a movie like this because the guy who plays Lord Hazelwood, for instance, he has to play both the Lord Hazelwood role and the Clayton as Hazelwood role. And it's such a ridiculous idea to be like, oh yeah, now you're this other guy's brain in this body and so on. And the willingness to go for that and just play it with as much dedication and professionalism as you would have played any other role helps us to believe the story in a way that, you know, sometimes when you see American B-movies, you know, the actors are garbage. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's, partly because of the different traditions that British film actors and American film actors kind of come from. And I'm, I'm definitely overgeneralizing and I'm definitely stereotyping. But what you tend to see is that when you watch British film, those are actors who most of the time are doing stage work. Mm -hmm. They're, they're stage actors in London on, you know, the West End doing Shakespeare and they do a movie every once in a while to make some cash. Whereas, like, American actors, you know, especially when you're looking at Poverty Row, B-picture American actors, those are bright-eyed, pretty kids who dropped out of school to move to L.A. to become a picture star and are waiting tables at, like, you know, diners in L.A. and then, you know, working in 
low-rent Poverty Row B movies on the weekend, right? Mm -hmm. So even in the cheapest British movies, there's a professionalism to the actors that you don't get in American movies, and it really helps this movie work. Yeah. Yeah, so Anna Lee was great. Karloff was great, but Karloff's always great. For sure. I like that he got to be the mad scientist this time. Yeah, and he does Finally. a really good job at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he says, he says, those fools, you know, exactly <laughs> how you should if you're a mad scientist. Yeah. One of the things that is always kind of interesting when you're watching these kind of early sci-fi films to me is the degree to which later cliche ideas have to be kind of hand-holded to the audience. Mm. So what I mean by that is in like a modern movie, we would understand and accept a mind transference plot without a second thought. Like you could just be like, I took his brain, I swapped it with this other guy. It's like the movie Freaky Friday. You know what I'm talking about. And you just, <laughs> you'd go for it, right? You would yeah, know what's I guess. up. And like in this movie, they kind of have to like tease it out where they have to explain the whole idea of even just separating the mind from the brain first. And then they kind of, after they've slowly and carefully explained that to you, go for the idea of switching it with someone else, and we see it all the way through with the animals the first time before it's even, like, relevant to the plot, so that by the time it's in the plot and happening, we're fully on board and we get what's up, right? And you wouldn't do that if you remade this movie today. Yeah, and what I think is um, a credit to the people making this film is it doesn't feel like they're sitting you down and explaining something to you. Mm. It all feels um, well-paced, and you still have that momentum. And I don't know if that's just the fact that, like, everything's still lit, like it's a horror film, um, the way people are acting, if it's just the, like, quick-witted dialogue. <laughs> like, something is, like, keeping me there, so I'm not just, like, lazing over, like, yeah, I get it, switching brains. What's interesting here is that even though it's this sci-fi premise with the mad scientist and the, you know, whatever, and it's set in the modern day and everything, they do a lot to link it back to traditional universal horror motifs mm. where, you know, when she first goes to work for him, he's holed up in this manor house outside a village and, oh, everyone in the village, like, whispers about how the, the scientist up in the house is crazy and, like, the cab driver won't take her <laughs> all the way to the door and, like, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And, like, that, that initial house that he's in is this creepy old mansion. And so the the trappings stay familiar even as we've moved away from the old stories. Mm -hmm. The character of Lord Hazelwood is a pretty clear and very unflattering parody of Lord Beaverbrook, mm -hmm. who was a powerful newspaper baron in the time that this movie came out. Uh, he was the owner of the Daily Express and many other papers, and was widely known at the time because his papers could kind of make or break any public figure in Britain, you know, if he decided he was going to destroy you, he could destroy you really easily. It's actually, to me, kind of pretty impressive to see a movie like this giving such a negative portrayal of Beaverbrook. I mean, obviously through uh, the name has been changed, right? But, like, Hazelwood is, does not come off well here. He comes off as a pompous idiot. You know, Beaverbrook held grudges pretty thoroughly. So I just kind of guess that a movie like this must have just been under his notice for the people making it to feel like they could have gotten away with this. I guess there's a certain freedom when you're making a B movie. Yeah. Right? Like, especially a horror movie mm -hmm. with a 
brain-switching science fiction premise, you know? Like, no one's going to pay attention to you, so you can kind of do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about, you know, pulling an Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, blacklisted from Hollywood type deal. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else we want to say about The Man Who Changed His Mind? No. Well, then let's move on to ranking, shall we? Sounds great. So I got a pretty small range on this one. When thinking about this movie, I I found myself thinking of two other movies uh, in comparison and ended up kind of just making my range around those two movies. Okay. Uh, So one of them was um, the last British horror movie we saw with Boris Karloff, which was The Ghoul Mm -hmm. from 1933. And this is better than that. In my estimation. Oh, for sure. The Ghoul was was all right. It was fine. But it was definitely like the British filmmakers taking two different American films and sandwiching them together to make their new story. Whereas this movie has an original plot, right? So I, I made The Ghoul my floor. Figured, like, this is going higher than that. Okay. Um, and then, you know, was working up a little bit from there. Uh, and my ceiling is the last movie we saw from Boris Karloff before this, The Walking Dead, uh, from earlier this year. I, I really enjoyed this movie, but I did not enjoy it as much as I enjoyed The Walking Dead. Uh, that movie just hits a lot of buttons, uh, (laughs) for me. So that's, that's my range, uh, below The Walking Dead and above The Ghoul. So I started looking lower, um, because it was like, yeah, this is an original film, it was a lot of fun, and it has this tired trope of, uh, love triangle weird thing. Yeah. Um, so I thought of The Raven. Mm, sure, sure, <laughs> sure. And I was like, yeah, this could probably, like, go above or below that. Right. And just kind of looking around that area, I was like, man, I'm not really having any luck figuring out where this should go. And The Raven, for the record, is around number 26. And then I was like, wait, where is the ghoul? Oddly enough, way higher somehow. Somehow? Yeah. And I was like, well, this is definitely better than the ghoul, so I'm putting it above it. I need to re-listen to our episode on the ghoul sometime soon, because it's up above, like, Freaks and The Black Room and Follow the House of Usher and all these movies I know that we liked a lot. I just don't remember the ghoul being that special. The ghoul is above The Black Room because it came before. Like, Black Room came after, right? So you can't really... Sure, but we could have put it above the ghoul. There are movies that came after the ghoul that are above it. Are we allowed to do, like, self-appeals? No. Okay. The Um, the list is the list. The list is the list unless a listener sends something in. Um, Sorry, I I interrupted you. Please, please go back. Sure. Resume. So, um, I see what you're saying in terms of, like, this range between The Walking Dead and The Ghoul. I don't know how I feel about comparing this movie to Vampire because they're very different. Yeah. Um, and I think Vampire has more of a, like, message. Even if it doesn't, Vampire certainly has, like, greater artistic value. Like, (laughs) you know, like, if I was deciding, like, what movies needed to be collected in some kind of important collection of films to last the ages, like, I think I'd rather Vampire than this. But I will say that this is probably more fun to watch. Oh, yeah. Uh, for I mean, sure. not, not, not to, like, put Vampire down, but, oh, yeah, this is way more fun. Um, so what do you think about just, like, replacing the ghoul at number 19? Yeah, so just slotting 
it in between those two films. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Cool. All right, so then that was easy enough. <laughs> uh, entering the list at number 19, The Man Who Changed His Mind from 1936, directed by Robert Stevenson. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to other episodes, as well as an appeals box, wink, wink, uh, where you can submit appeals, hint, hint, at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. On all of those services, it would be really helpful if you rated and reviewed the show. Um, That helps algorithms suggest the show to other people. Or just, you know, share us on Twitter and reblog us on Tumblr or tell your friends about the show. If you're uh, a big fan and really enjoy what we do, you can head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast to become a patron of the night for as low as a dollar a month. Uh, Donors at higher levels, such as $5 and $10, get access to rewards like exclusive bonus audio. And if we hit our Patreon goal, we will start doing monthly bonus episodes on horror-adjacent movies. Mm -hmm. Stuff like Fright Night, I guess. What do you mean, I guess? Fright Night's a horror movie. It's a comedy. No, it's a horror movie. Well, listen, we don't have to have this argument for, like, five years at the rate this show is going. (laughs) So let's just table that for now. Is there anything else I have to say about Patreon? No. Patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. It's a horror movie, Ben. And I'm not... Okay, cool. So what are we watching next week? Uh, Well, Sarah, next week we get to watch the movie that reanimated the (laughs) horror genre that brought it back from the dead, as it were. Is it a Frankenstein? It's 1939's Son of Frankenstein. Great. Yeah. Dracula's daughter killed it. Son of Frankenstein brings it back. Starring Basil Rathbone, Boris Karloff, and Bela Lugosi. Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for it, and I hope everyone else is too. And we get to skip three years, so we are... Some years closer to uh, current day. Yeah, three years closer. Yeah. All right. We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.